Okay, so <coughs> uh, whatever kind of meditation you want to do, whatever topic or subject you are pursuing, uh, it is always good to have a kind of process, a standard way of proceeding, uh, especially at the beginning, uh, and always remembering just to start out by establishing the mindfulness uh, to find that ease in the body of the mind, uh, the right kind of attitude. Uh, and it's really from there that any kind of meditation starts out. Uh, so always try to follow a useful procedure uh, that establishes these things uh, in a positive and nice, easy way. Uh.
And uh, now let us try to take the meditation in a slightly different direction. Uh, try to contemplate the idea of dying uh, and see where that gets us. Uh, and if you feel uncomfortable with this, then please don't do it. Uh, but it's not really all that challenging here. Uh, and the main idea here is to make it real. Uh, it really has to be the case that you get it clear that you could die at any time. Uh, and because you can die at any time, uh, it might as well be now or soon. Uh, and when you get that idea clear, then uh, that is where the effect really works on you. Uh, so start off this contemplation uh, by just imagining yourself uh, lying in a room. Uh, it's a very simple room. Uh, the walls are all white. Uh, there is no window in this room. Uh, the door is closed. Uh, all there is is a bed. Uh, no decorations, nothing else. Uh, and this bed has a very thin mattress. Uh, and you're lying on your back on this mattress, uh, clad in some kind of white garment. Uh, there's nothing of interest. Uh, you have said goodbye to all your friends and family members. Uh, and you know that from now on, uh, until the point you die, uh, you will not be seeing anyone. Uh, you only have a few hours left of your life. Uh, you're lying on this bed, uh, waiting to die. Uh, what does it feel like? Uh, And uh, just uh, take note of that feeling here, uh, and just put it to one side for now. Uh, and then as you do this contemplation, uh, you realize you're getting closer and closer to the moment when you're going to pass away. Uh, and remember, because it can happen at any time, uh, this is always a reality. Uh, so you might as well make it real now. Uh, and as you get closer and closer to this point, uh, you realize there are so many things in this world uh, that you have to abandon. The most obvious things that you have to abandon uh, is the ownership of all the things in your life. Uh, now is the time to give up all of those things, uh, everything in your life uh, that you have ever owned.
And uh, as you progress, uh, just notice that feeling of abandoning things, uh, what it feels like. Yeah. And as you move on, coming closer and closer to the time of passing away, yeah, you realize there's more things you have to let go of in this life. Uh, time is getting short. Uh, you have to say goodbye to all the people in your life, uh, all your friends and acquaintances, uh, all your family members. Uh, everyone has to go. Uh, from here on, you have to be self-reliant. Uh, so say goodbye in your heart uh, to everyone, all the people uh, in your life. Uh, And uh, as the time is ticking down, uh, maybe only very short time left now before you come to the very end of this existence, uh, you start to understand that so much of your identity, uh, so much of the person that you take yourself to be, uh, is tied up uh, with this world. Uh, your position within your family, uh, your position in society, uh, your education, your nationality, your background, uh, all of those things uh, will disappear when you depart from this world. Uh. So let go of all of that sense of identity, uh, of who you think you shall take yourself to be, uh, and only carry forward uh, the good qualities uh, within yourself. Uh.
And uh, as you do this, uh, you can feel that sense of emptiness inside. Uh, that en- sense of emptiness uh, is actually very beautiful and profound. Uh, it's nice to get rid of all of these things in the world uh, and feeling that sense of peace that comes with the emptiness within. Uh, and as you approach your final moments uh, closer and closer, uh, you realize one of the last things you have to let go of uh, is actually your physical body. Uh, you have to leave it behind. Uh, so let go also of your body. Uh. And uh, as you are letting go in this way, uh, there comes a point when you're not really sure uh, whether you are dead or alive. And you realize uh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, It is irrelevant. Uh, All you feel is this beautiful sense of emptiness inside, a beautiful sense of peace. uh, And what you are carrying with you uh, are all the good qualities that you have built up uh, throughout your life. Uh, and you are just enjoying the journey, uh, letting go of everything around you. Uh. 
And uh, as you gradually move on in this way, uh, just allowing the journey to happen by itself, uh, you start to wonder, uh, why were you ever afraid of this process of dying? It's such a beautiful process. Uh, It is so peaceful and empty and delightful. uh, And as you reflect on this process in this way, uh, you start to feel a sense of gratitude, uh, a gratitude to all the people in your life uh, who allowed you to build up all of these good qualities uh, that are now sustaining you the very last moments of your life. Uh, Thank you to all those Kalyanamittas in the world. Uh, What a wonderful thing it is uh, that you gave me all the support uh, to make this beautiful ending possible. As you feel that sense of gratitude uh, to all these people in the world, uh, you just want to wish everyone well. uh. You want to wish everyone the happiness that you are experiencing now. uh. May everyone in the whole world, uh, human beings and otherwise, uh, may every one of you be well and happy. uh.
And uh, now just uh, very gently come back to your breath uh, and just stay with the breath for a few moments. And uh, once again, before we come to the very end, uh, just take stock of where you feel, how you feel now, uh, and whether you feel more at ease, uh, and what has changed during the meditation, uh, and more importantly, why it has changed. Uh, Okay, everyone, so let us come back to the questions again. Uh, there's a lot of questions today. Okay, we'll see how we go. So let's start from the top. Dear Ajahn Bamali, uh, I hope you're not pushing yourself too hard uh, going from one retreat to another two days later and so on. Uh, I'm trying to get my head around Sutta Nipata 4.3, the eight on malice. Uh, clearly, as you mentioned, the Buddha brought us to a set of interconnected views about the nature of reality, etc. Having learned these, what does it mean in practice to not attach to views? 
on a related note, what will that mean for those who have been described as faith followers? Probably need a strong adherence to Buddhist. Who probably need a strong adherence to Buddhist views. Okay. So what it means in practice is that you will notice when you are having a conversation with somebody. Yeah, whether you feel defensive if someone challenges you, for example, you feel that you know someone is saying that your your view is wrong. Well, how do you feel about that? Do you get defensive? Do you get upset? Or do you think, whatever, maybe I'm wrong? Or, you know, because the reality about views is that every one of us has wrong view. Unless you are a noble person, you're going to have wrong view to some extent. So we're trying to kind of gradually move our views closer and closer to the Buddha. Yeah? And then finally, the very last jump is like a bang moment where you actually move into the full right view. But prior to that, we're always going to have wrong view to some extent. Even if you have faith in rebirth, you have faith in kamma, you start to understand what the teachings are about, there's still going to be a gap between where you are at and the right view of the noble ones. And the very last moment is that's where kind of the revolution happens and you gain the full right view. And that is the entry to stream entry, where you actually see things according to reality. That's like the big kind of explosion with bang, well now I really understand it. So you will notice that, yeah, and the views that are talked about here are largely views that have to do with um, religious matters, yeah, things such as whether things are eternal or not, yeah, whether there is anything to do with the maybe rebirth of your views about Buddhism or someone says, oh, the Buddha didn't know anything, yeah, he didn't have an iPhone or whatever. So that kind of stuff, yeah, and uh, then you see your response to those things. Uh, that's why you notice whether you have strong views or not, uh, or you, whether, rather whether you attach to those views. Uh, a faith follower uh, um, probably has strong adherence to Buddhist views. Well, a faith follower will be someone who has, yes, they have faith, but they also will have, uh, it will be a very established, firm kind of faith based in very large part on insight. It is not just faith, it is also a mixture of insight and faith. And actually I think they're quite likely not to have very strong adherence to views because their view will almost be right already. Yeah, they will already be on the right path and they will have be very close to being a stream enter. So actually they will not be very challenged. If someone challenges them, they will be pretty relaxed about it. Yeah, they won't actually have any big problems. So on the one hand, even though they have a very close rather precisely because they're very close to having right view, they will actually be okay with being challenged. They won't feel any great need to defend themselves. Yeah, and this is really where you know that you have attachment to views or not. Right, okay, I better carry on because there are many questions here tonight. Dear Ajahn, regarding the four kinds of person in the world in Angutta 4, 125, Okay, well, right. I, I, I do remember the suit as reasonably well, but when you say Angutta 4, 125, that's really stre- <laughs> stretching my, my memory. Which one? I don't think so. Is it? Okay, I think it will become clear. I, I, there's quite a long note. I think it will become clear as I, as I read on here. So, why 
Is it that if we dwell in any of the four Brahma-viharas right up to the point that we die, we are born into one of the heavenly realms of the devas? However, if we are a whirling, we complete the entire lifespan of the devas, which can be eons, and then we go to hell, to the animal realm or to the domain of the spirits. But if we are an instructed one or a disciple, we attain Nibbana after completing the entire lifespan of the deva. Seems unfair. <laughs> Life is unfair. <clears throat> anyway, is there no way of atoning in the deva world to reach Nibbana? What do you say? Um, well, this is, uh, this is the power of insight. Yeah? This is the, exactly what it means, the power of insight, the power of being a stream enterer who has seen the Dhamma means that once you get reborn into a high realm, you don't come back again. Yeah, because you have no interest in coming back again to an ordinary world because you know where happiness is to be found. You know there's no, no way, there's nothing that drives you towards a lower realm. So once you come out of that jhana state or whatever, it is actually specifically called jhana anagami in the sutta, there's one sutta which calls it the jhana anagami, because you have that insight, you come out of the jhana state or the brahma-vihara, bang, you go to Nibbana straight away, because you have no will, no motivation to carry on in samsaric existence. Yeah, you have seen some of the highest things that are possible to attain by human beings. These kind of Brahma-vihara states are utterly, completely blissful. There's no way you want to go back to anything less. So because of that, and because of your insight, you just disappear, you are finished. Whereas the ordinary person, the sense of self is still there. You still want to carry on. Yeah? The sense of self is then what drives you on to the next rebirth because the sense of self is more important to you than even the bliss. Yeah? And so that's why when you finish that realm, then you get reborn somewhere else. It's important to, I think, understand the meaning. The meaning is not that you come out of the Brahma realm and you go straight to hell. Yeah? That is not really the point, or even to the animal realm. Because the bliss and the kind of mind state you have is not really conducive to go to a really bad rebirth. But what it means is eventually you can, go, can be reborn in those states. But probably through kind of a series of stages, yeah, you go to Brahma realm, then you go down to a lower Deva realm and kind of gradually get corrupted until eventually you go, you know, you get reborn in one of these lower realms. I don't think it means you go directly there. That would be very unusual because your mind is so pure, yeah? You cannot be reborn in those bad realms with a very pure mind state. It's impossible. So I think it's more that eventually you can go there again after, after these things. And I think one way of thinking about this is to think about the way that uh, kind of the human development is described in the Aganya Sutta. Yeah, I don't know if you know the Aganya Sutta. It's a very, it's like a slightly mythological and legendary sutta, uh, number 27 in the Diganikai, the Long Discourses of the Buddha. And the legend there is about the kind of the evolution of the world, yeah, how, how, how being, basically about beings, because the evolution of the world in the end is really about how beings evolve. And the beings they start off in these incredibly refined realms, yeah, the Abhasra realm, the Jhana realms, and then gradually the craving kind of sets in, yeah, and they start 
eating coarser things. Uh, and as the craving starts to work in them, it gets coarser and coarser and coarser. And as they get coarser, the beings go coarser and coarser and coarser until eventually they get reborn in the human realm. Yeah? And it's kind of this descent from the very refined Brahma realms uh, to all the way down to the human realm. And then, of course, eventually even to other low realms uh, if you have made the bad kama, which takes you there. Yeah. And I think this is like... Uh, is a parable for the evolution of the human mind. Yeah, this is an part, important part of this. Uh, the human mind tends to coarser and coarser things uh, unless we stop it, unless we go against the stream, unless we say no to some of these bad things. Uh, the tendency is to kind of enjoy coarser and coarser things going down. Why? Because it's easy, simply. Yeah? It's kind of the, how we tend to be as human beings unless we have this counter veiling factor of the spiritual path. Uh, this is how things go. Huh? And so this is what we see here also in, I think, this sutta. We see kind of that paro parable of the Ganya Sutta. This is exactly, I think, what is going on here. Huh? The evolution of the human mind tends in this way. Huh? And that has to do ultimately with the sense of self, huh? because the self wants to be protected. Huh? And it's one of those things I remember Ajahn Brahm was saying very early on in the many, many years ago, since he said this now, but he said that, you know, we would rather be in hell than be annihilated. Uh, because the sense of self has this incredibly powerful protection about itself. Yeah, it wants to carry on. Uh, you'd rather suffer enormously than be annihilated. Uh, usually, not always, uh, but you, sometimes. Uh. All right, uh, okay, let's go on to the uh, next one. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, thank you for your inspiring teachings. In this retreat, you mentioned many times on the need to do reflection. My question is, how do we do it? <laughs> this is a question I get, a very common question, to be honest with you. So this is, uh, yeah, is it part of a sitting meditation? We sit, watch our breath, and when we have attained some calm, we then pick up a topic to reflect on, question mark e.g., what is the hindrance that was preventing me from going further on my spiritual path? Or am I making any progress on the spiritual path? Question mark. Or is reflection something we do outside of sitting meditation when we are fed up with our lack of progress and decide not to sit but instead sit on an armchair with eyes open and reflect? Thank you very much. It's actually all of those things. Yeah, Reflection is very broad. When I... Uh, w one thing is the kind of reflection you do after meditation and you reflect on how the meditation has developed and you try to understand how it works. Yeah? You start to see, okay, now I was peaceful. How come I was peaceful now, not before? What is the difference? What did I do this time? Actually, I didn't do anything. That's what happened. Yeah? Or you, what was my inclination of the mind when I started out? Actually, I had this very positive feeling within. I was inclining my mind towards some... Uh, beautiful thoughts, and that is why I became peaceful. Uh, and you start to see the connection between how you incline the mind, uh, how you bring up perceptions about certain things, uh, you understand what the meaning of letting go is. Uh, suddenly you're peaceful. Why are you suddenly peaceful? It's because you let go. Now that is where you get the insight. Uh, what does it mean to let go? Well, basically it means that you just are able to just relax and be patient and enjoy. That's really all it means, yeah? And you start to understand these things. They are so simple. 
and yet we make them so complicated. They're very, very simple things. Uh. That is a very important part of uh, reflection. Yeah? And sometimes if your meditation becomes incredibly deep, that reflection can be very, very powerful. Uh. We're going to talk about the five aggregates later on on this retreat. Uh, maybe tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, probably the day after tomorrow, so probably on Saturday or something. Uh. I've forgotten what day of the week it is, but rough around Saturday. And uh, so um, uh, then that comes also into how do we contemplate the five khandhas? Uh, and as we shall see, it's actually not, it's not all that, uh, it's kind, kind of fairly natural. We actually contemplate these five khandhas all the time without really realizing it. Uh. So this is uh, one way of reflecting. The other way of reflecting is, for example, some, you can do it while you are walking. Sometimes walking is a very good time to reflect. You can walk back and forth. You can sit in a chair, as you suggest here, but sometimes walking is quite nice because when the body moves, the mind also tends to move more easily. You can even do these kind of reflections just by walking in the forest here. Yeah, going for a little walk, go by yourself, just go quietly, and think of some of the suttas that we've been talking about. Yeah? What do these things mean? What does it mean not to be attached to the sensory world? What does it mean to have more compassion for people? Who are the what are the difficult things in my life? What are the things I, that upset me very easily? How can I change my attitude towards that? Yeah? Using some of these ideas we have been talking about. Or you can sit in your armchair and you can actually take these suttas in front of you and you can read them to yourself. And you can ask yourself, what does this mean? When you read a sutta, do it slowly especially if you're feeling peaceful already. Read the simile, then close your eyes and ask yourself, what does this mean? What does this mean in my lived experience? These are not theories, these are, these are re realities. That's the whole point of these things. What does this actually feel like in my lived experience? And open your eyes after whatever, five minutes, whatever you want to. Read the next simile. Try the same thing again. Read the simile of the person walking in the jungle by themselves without a doctor, without medicine, and they are sick. How do you feel about a person who is sick like that, walking by themselves? If you cannot help because you're too far away, you feel compassion. And if you can help, you want to help them, right? If you see someone who is really sick and they are really struggling, you, 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 you help them. Why? Because it feels right to help someone in that situation. That are, those are the difficult people in our lives. Yeah? the ones we find hard to deal with, the people with the bad qualities. That is how you see them. You actually want to help them. This is what compassion is, the feeling of wanting to help, wanting to kind of find a way out of these things. This is what it means to reflect. It's actually very simple. Yeah? It's not, very, not kind of something very difficult. But the idea is to gradually align the way we see the world with the way the Buddha sees the world. That's kind of what it is about. How can we gradually move closer to that? You can see the world as the Buddha saw it. And all of this helps you in your meditation. Then when you come back to sit down to meditate, you become more peaceful. When you become more peaceful, you come out of your meditation afterwards, you can get some really deep insights. You can really start to understand what this body and mind, what they really are. Yeah? So all of these things kind of come together. They build up together into this kind of crescendo. And then one day, bang, you have some really profound insights as a consequence. Yeah, something like that. So 
I wish you the best of luck in your reflection practice. See what happens. Dear Ajahn, when discussing getting rid of resentment to the person whose behavior in body, speech and mind are all impure, the solution given is to apply karuna. Is it possible? In other words, compassion. Karuna is the Pali word for compassion. Uh, uh, is it possible that such a person is not in a state of mind to accept compassion at that time and intent on harming you and or others? I guess the next option is to let go trying and keep your distance, Meta. <laughs> well, remember, karuna does not have to necessarily be active. Yeah, you can have, I mean, let's say you see something in, on TV and you see kind of people dying in a faraway country. You can have compassion without acting on that compassion. Yeah? You can just feel, okay, you just want, would like to help. Or you feel, wow, look at that. They, they're all dying for no reason. You know, they, you know, something is, well, there's an earthquake and people just die for no apparent reason whatsoever. Yeah? And you feel compassion. Compassion is not always acting. It can also be at a distance. The, the main thing that we are trying to do here is to develop our own minds. Uh, yeah? And that developing of our own minds, uh, uh, we want to overcome our own defilements. That's kind of the main thing. Yeah? And that overcoming of defilements, can hap- it should happen also through actively having compassion and kindness. Uh, but sometimes it is sufficient just to have a passive kind of compassion. Yeah? And then help when you can down the track. Yeah? Because the purpose is, if you want to have real insight, uh, and if you want to help the world in the long run, if you want to help the world big time, uh, then you need those insights to really understand the nature of reality. Uh, so you don't always have to help. And you're right, sometimes you cannot help people. Yeah? Some people are not willing to be helped. Okay, then of course uh, you have to have compassion at a distance. Uh, but you never really give up on that compassion. Uh. Okay. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, would you please share on how the monastic community uh, to settle in, especially a big one like Bodhinyana? How to settle into the monastic community, especially a big one like Bodhinyana? Everyone comes with their own habits and conditioning. Uh, any advice for latecomers, middle aged person? Thank you. <laughs> So uh, that's an interesting question. Well, <laughs> not sure. Okay, so uh, how do you settle in as a middle-aged person into the um, Bodhinyana monastery with your habits and things? Well, you have to learn to let go of your habits and conditioning a little bit, even though you are middle-aged. Yeah, you cannot hold on to those things uh, because if you hold on to them, you are going to suffer. You're going to come up against other people's habits uh, and it's going to be problematic. So you have to be flexible with your habits. Uh, otherwise it's going to be hard. So you, yeah, and uh, uh, I think it is easier perhaps, I don't know if it is easier in a monastic community to let go of your habits. Uh, perhaps it is because you are now, you have a purpose, you have a reason for letting go of your habits uh, and conditioning. Uh, yeah, so it's kind of easier. But um, yeah, so um, it's, I guess it's like every way in the world. We have to kind of be adaptable, yeah, whether it's in work life or family life or whatever. Everyone has to be adaptable. Everyone, we all have to be able to change. We all have to kind of to, uh, you know, to uh, learn how to work with others uh, one way or another, regardless of your age. Uh, and the same thing is true in monastic life. Uh, 
So just go with the flow uh, and uh, have compassion, have understanding both for yourself and for others uh, and uh, try to deal with these problems. Uh, you can deal with them if you want to. Uh, yeah, it is not that hard uh, to uh, adapt. Uh, it doesn't mean that you always have to go with the opinions of others. Uh, it doesn't mean that. It means that uh, so, you, know, you have to feel out the right time for going with other people's opinions. Uh, sometimes you can make your case if you have to uh, and all of these kind of things. Uh, but uh, remember that um, everyone, is often try everyone is trying their best. Uh, yeah? So other people, they, uh, for them, their habits are just as real as your habits are for you. Uh, so if they see things differently than you see them, well, for them, that reality is just as real as your reality is to you. And when you kind of get that, you kind of are stepping a bit more into other people's shoes, and then you can sort of understand their viewpoint a bit more. So that is kind of helpful. We all think that our reality is real, and then that kind of helps you to be more accepting of other people. All right, so uh, we will just carry on. Dear Ajahn, thank you so much for your teaching. I have learned a lot, much better. That's a very nice one, that's, that's, that's good. Ajahn, <laughs> Ajahn Brahm used to have a little box, I don't think he has it anymore. He had a box of cards yeah, in his room, and these were all the thank you cards that he got. And it was a box was overflowing with thank you cards. Uh, and he, I think he was joking a bit, but said every time he felt a bit down or depressed, uh, he would just go into that box and he would, he would read some of those thank you cards. Uh, and then he would feel kind of happy again and he would sort of be okay. So maybe I should put this to one side as well. Learn from Ajahn Brahm. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, <coughs> okay, Venerable Sir. At times when I meditate, I inspect my mind. I cannot see sense desires or ill will present in my mind. The mind is somewhat in a happy state. Uh, wish that stay with that state. I notice good vitaka vichara goes through the mind. These are the kind of movements of the mind, vitaka vichara. Example, how I should teach my kids, friends, and these good things I learned in this retreat. These thoughts obviously hold, holds progress uh, of the meditation. Uh, is this a form of the first hindrance, karma chanda? How would one overcome such a hindrance? P.S. It would be wonderful if Venerable Kaliko can do a retreat this year. <laughs> yeah, uh, the one he did a few years ago was awesome. Uh, wow, that's pretty pretty good. Uh. There's, I'll put this one aside for Venerable Kaliko. I think it's a good idea. I actually did suggest to him just the other day that he should come and do a retreat. So he, he's kind of already, uh, kind of it's already, maybe it's already in the work. So maybe <laughs> see, see what happens. Uh, so um, anyway, let's come back to your question. Um, so yes, it is Kama Chanda. Yeah? Because everything in that realm of the five senses, yeah, that have to do with your kids and friends and all good things uh, you have learned in this retreat, all of those thoughts are in that realm. The things that you learn on this retreat, well, it really depends on what you're thinking of. Some of those things might not be in the sensory realm. It might be thoughts about Dhamma. But certainly when it comes to your kids and things, probably it is more to do with the five sense realm. So... Um, 
the idea here is just to put those things aside. Yeah? The future is uncertain, the future is unknown. Just leave the teaching of your kids and friends to one side for now and then come back to those things later on after the retreat. For now, just focus on the present. Remember, the future is made not by trying to control the future by thinking about it. The future is made by how you practice in the present moment, becoming peaceful now, having the right attitude now. That is where you create the future. And then when you come back to your kids, you will be ready yeah, to do the right thing because your mind will already be in the right state. So just, uh, just leave those things aside. The future, too unreliable, too uncertain. Don't know what's going to happen. Uh, leave it out. So that's how you overcome it. Okay. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, in the sutta we discussed today quarrels and uh, kalavivara, quarrels and disputes. It says name and form causes contact. Is name and form means all objects? Thank you so much for your kindness. Um, I'm kind of getting to that tomorrow because it's part of the sutta. I haven't really discussed it now, but uh, name and form is like the um, name is like the mental aspect of existence. Form is the physical aspect of existence. And these two together is what makes contact or experience possible. Yeah, experience happens through the physical senses. That's the physical reality. If you don't have an eye, you can't see. So the physical reality has to be there. If you haven't got an ear, you can't hear. So you need the physical aspect and then you need the mental aspect. The mental aspect is that which interprets and understands the thing that comes through your senses. So you need both. Yeah? And without both, you can't really experience the world. There are some exceptions to that, like, for example, the immaterial realms where you only need the mental aspect. But generally, you need both of these aspects. So that's what it means. And then you can contact the world because of both of those things. Yeah, let's leave, leave it for now. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that tomorrow. So let's see, see what happens. Dear Ajahn, the Buddha has attained the highest attainment. attainment. Why is he still meditating? Thank you. <laughs> Why does the Buddha bother to meditate? Isn't he already happy as he is? <laughs> and the, the answer is that even for the Buddha, the state of meditation is more happy than ordinary experience. Yeah, ordinary experience, you have to deal with the world. You're still seeing things, hearing things. And remember, the whole point is that the sensory reality, yeah, this is kind of the whole point of these contemplations that we did before, the various similes. Sensory existence, existence with sensory objects around us, is inferior to the deep meditations. In the deep meditations, the mind is bright and brilliant to feel happiness, a very powerful sense of happiness, extreme kinds of bliss. And so it is very attractive. Even for the Buddha, it is attractive. Because ordinary experience is just, by definition, inferior to the experience you have then. So that's really the answer to it. And I think sometimes also the Buddha was kind of contemplating the Dhamma. Yeah? He was, had to decide, how am I going to teach these teachings? Yeah, the teachings, the insight that comes from the practice of the path is like a flash. You see reality, but then you have to verbalize it somehow. You have to articulate that insight. And that, 
articulation is then the formulation of the four noble truth, the dependent origination, and all of these things. But you know, you don't see the twelve links of dependent origination in a flash. Yeah, this has to be articulated, and so even the Buddha would have spent some time thinking about these things and reflecting how to present these teachings. So uh, that, that's another reason why he would be meditating, to think about these things. Uh, the third reason he would be meditating was probably to be an example. Uh, yeah? And uh, he, he would, you know, I mean, if you want your monastic community and the lay community to practice accordingly, you have to kind of uh, show the way. Yeah? And this is also probably another reason why he did that. Uh, so that's three reasons for you. Uh, there probably are more reasons. Uh, so, uh, but three is all I can think of right now, so let's leave it at that. Could you please explain the Heart Sutra? Emptiness's form, form is emptiness. Thank you kindly. The answer is no, I cannot explain the Heart Sutra. The Heart Sutra is a Mahayana Sutra. The Heart Sutra is a distillation of the uh, Prajna Paramita Sutra. Prajna Paramita means like the perfection of wisdom. Uh, these are some very large Mahayana Sutras. Uh, they come in vari various lengths. Uh, these are kind of the core part of what Mahayana is about. Uh, I can't explain it because I don't know anything about it. Uh, that's the reason. Uh, and um, I am not really all that interested in it either, to be honest with you. So. Uh, don't come back next year and expect an explanation because you're not going to get it. <laughs> I, I am kind of a dyed-in-the-wool early Buddhist person. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm interested in what the Buddha taught. I'm not interested in what other people taught. And, um, and I think this is such, for me, there's such an incredibly important distinction. Yeah? We know from historical studies that the Buddha taught certain things. We know that other things came about after the Buddha. Yeah? And so then the question is, who are these people who taught these things after the Buddha? We don't even know who they are. They are anonymous authors. Are we going to trust some anonymous author to have the same insight into the reality as the Buddha had? I think that's really dangerous. Yeah? So I take my stance on the word of the Buddha. We know, to me, these suttas are very profound. They work when you practice them. There's something about them which is very cohesive and coherent. There are other people who have practiced this path all the way to the end. I have strong confidence that these work. But for these other suttas, I just don't know. I'm not willing to spend a lot of time learning Abhidhamma, learning the Visuddhimagga, learning the commentaries, learning the Mahayana suttas, learning all of these other things. No doubt, there's a lot of interesting things in there. I'm sure there is, because the Buddhist tradition is very rich. It has a lot of interesting things going on. But actually, I'm a little bit afraid of that interest, because I know what my mind is like. I start getting interested in something, and I, I get carried away. In the next 10 years, I end up studying Mahayana Suttas to kind of understand them. Then I wake up one day, wait a minute, what happened to death contemplation and all of that? All gone out of the window. There is enough suttas already. Yeah, I don't know if you feel we have been going through the suttas today. Some of them are very profound. It takes a lot of contemplation to understand these things. Even simple things are deep very often. Yeah, simple things like the simile of the dog or the simile of the piece of meat, they're actually very profound. They're easy to understand, but they're profound at the same time. What we really need to do is to read the same suttas, boring as it may seem. <laughs> 
read them again and again and again. Allow it to sink in gradually. Every year here at Anagro, I read the same suttas. And I'm very glad to see that you're still coming back. Yeah? <laughs> because that means you have understood yeah, that this is important. This is what matters. You are very... You are, you have, there's a degree of wisdom in that, in going into the same thing deeper and deeper every time. And that's why I read certain suttas, because to me, these are very powerful explanations of the path, which kind of we need to go deeper in meditation, etc. So I'm really interested in the word of the Buddha. I'm not interested in the word of these anonymous authors, regardless of how good it might be. And sometimes we don't really know if it is good. Sometimes it may have weaknesses in it that are very hard to see. And then you kind of get led astray. That's the other danger with these things, yeah? It can be very difficult. It may seem really wise and really powerful, but actually there may be little things in there would actually take you down the garden path and heading in the wrong direction. So put it aside. I wouldn't worry about this. Leave the heart sutra. You know, don't, don't, don't worry about it. That's what I would suggest. If you really have to read it, okay, read it. But um, find someone else to explain it to you. <laughs> so, next one. Dear Ajahn, can you please explain the main difference between Theravada and Zen Buddhism for us? Uh, thank you for enjoying the Dharma talk very much. So, um, Theravada and Zen Buddhism, well, Zen, Zen Buddhism is in Japan and Theravada is in Southeast Asia, that's one of the differences. Uh, but uh, I, I'm not, personally, I'm not so interested in the difference between Theravada and Zen. I am more interested in the difference between early Buddhism and later Buddhism. That's what really, that, that to me is the main distinction. And Theravada has a mixture of early Buddhism and late Buddhism. Yeah, if you ask someone what Theravada is, I'm just involved with this very large translation project. And they told me that we want Theravada interpretation. Yeah. So I've been translating the Vinaya Pitika. I've actually basically finished. But, and they, they told me, that, well, we are going to print this translation of yours, but we want Theravada interpretation. And what that means, it means understanding the Vinaya in terms of the commentaries. That's what it means. So you have to interpret everything according to the commentaries. And that is what Theravada is. It is all the commentaries, all the Abhidhamma, all the extra works that interprets the suttas. So Theravada is both early and late. Zen also probably both early and late. Yeah? Actually probably more late when it comes to Zen. Uh, if you go to the uh, Buddhism, it's practiced in places like uh, East Asia, like uh, in China or in Taiwan or in uh, uh, Korea, for example. It is a mixture of late and early suttas. There the emphasis is more on the later suttas, but they still have the early suttas early Buddhist texts, and there are some people also within those countries who actually study the early texts. So, I, so that is where we should make the distinction yeah, between early and late Buddhism, not between Theravada and Zen. To me, that meaning is much less interesting yeah, as far as I'm concerned. So that is what I would do. And so then, to understand that difference, then read the... Um, uh, the book on the authenticity of the early Buddhist texts. Yeah, that is one that is really worthwhile reading because that will give you an idea of precisely that distinction, why it is that we know that some suttas are early and some are late. So, uh, yes, not really answering your question, but I hope you 
would be satisfied regardless. So let's, uh, let's move on now. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, is the Theragata uh, uh, 17.2 displayed today at Janagra reception? It says, when eating fresh or dried food, one shouldn't be overly satisfied. Is that what it says? Okay, gee, okay, that's interesting. Uh, I don't know what that means. What does this, what does this imply, Ajahn? I, I have no idea what that means. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to... I will look it up and I will come back to you tomorrow. How's that? That's, I'm, I'm going to give you the maximum service. So I'll put that to one side. Tick. Come back to it tomorrow. <laughs> okay, it is a bit embarrassing to ask this, but I must. I'm having trouble with lustful thoughts, even though I know they feel unpleasant and waste my meditation time. Sorry to ask. I'd like this to stop. It is a disturbance. Yes? And uh, you're not the only one. This is very common. You go on a retreat and uh, there's nothing much to do and the mind will go where it thinks it will find some happiness. Yeah? And this is exactly what happens. So a very, very common problem. So um, sometimes it is very difficult to get rid of, very hard to overcome these things because they, especially if you're not enjoying what you're doing, so the answer really is to always to enjoy the meditation. Yeah? And so then do something else for a while. Don't sit there with these thoughts just going on around in your mind again and again and again. It is not very useful. Do something else. Go for a walk, have a cup of tea, read something. Do something different. And then you can maybe, hopefully, eventually they will kind of fade away and there won't be a problem anymore. But uh, one of the things, one of the traditional things to do to overcome these things uh, is to focus on what is called the, the kind of repulsiveness of the body, the negative side of the body. Uh, the reason why you have these kind of lustful thoughts is because the body seems attractive. That's why. Uh, if the body is no longer attractive, well, these thoughts are not really going to be possible. Uh, so uh, that can mean, traditionally, that means the 30, looking at the 31 parts of the body, yeah? And a simple exercise is just to take the skin off the body. And take the skin off, the body is not the same anymore. <laughs> yeah? the, the, the skin is kind of necessary for the body to be attractive. Without skin, the body is not kind of the same. And they had a, a very interesting exhibition when we had the, uh, the um, Buddhist conference down at the conference center in Perth some years ago. They had an exhibition of uh, bodies that had been taken the skin off. I don't know if you saw that exhibition. It's called Körperwelten or something like that. It's a German, it was a German man who, who did this. Uh, and uh, it was really, really fascinating, yeah? taking the skin off the bodies and you think, wow, this is what the body actually looks like. Yeah? And it's kind of, uh, it, it's uh, not attractive anymore at all. Is it repulsive? Maybe even a little bit repulsive. It's certainly not attractive, that's for sure. Yeah? So this is something you can do, yeah, to overcome these uh, these kind of thoughts. Um, it is a kind of short term, though. Yeah, it is not really. It doesn't last very long uh, because um, the, the, you know there's kind of a fight going on between these things. Uh, and to to my mind, the general idea uh, is just to overcome attraction to the whole sensory realm uh, and to see the whole sensory realm as really kind of uh, an uninteresting. And with that seeing of the whole sensory realm as uninteresting, gradually that uh, sensory, that desire also starts to disappear. But it's hard. Don't, I would, if I were you, don't try too hard, too hard to overcome these things because uh, sometimes we just strengthen it by trying it to overcome it too much. Uh, 
and just uh, go for a walk and just allow it to kind of peter out a little bit uh, and then come back and sit down and try again. Uh, and it is very unpleasant because these uh, thoughts, all they do is just give rise to craving uh, and there's no kind of solution, there's no way out. Uh, so it's uh, absolutely unpleasant. Uh. Anyway, good luck. Uh. Okay, dear Ajahn Brahmali, can you kindly elaborate what you mean when you say you should you should dwell, develop, develop, probably develop the four satipatthanas? Thank you so much, and much merit. Um, so um, you should dwell in. I think it says dwell in, dwell in. Oh, a bit unclear. Anyway, so something like that. So what does it mean to develop or to dwell in or to practice the four satipatthanas? And what it really means, uh, the simple way of thinking about it is simply, it just means breath meditation. Yeah, it just means watching the breath. And that's really enough to take the satipatthana all the way to the end. Yeah? And this is one of those interesting things in the suttas, which to me always was kind of an eye-opener, yeah? because you can read all the various treatises on satipatthana practice, uh, how it is done. You have the Gwenka method is one method, Mahasi method is another method. And there's all these methods and ways of practicing satipatthana. So, but I, again, I always prefer to go to the suttas. What does the Buddha say about this? Uh, and the Buddha doesn't really give any clear instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta. Or he gives instructions, but not exactly how to do it. Yeah, he says, be aware of feelings, be aware of mind states, but he doesn't really give a context. It almost sounds like you just be aware of mind states without any, you know, without being clear exactly the framework for that. And then you come to the Anapanasati Sutta, the mindfulness of breathing, and lo and behold, it gives you the framework. Yeah, it tells you all the four satipatthanas are developed through mindfulness of breathing. Yeah. So suddenly you have a framework. And of course, if the Buddha gives you a framework, and it is a framework which is as important as Anapanasati, because you see Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, you see it throughout the suttas. It's a very important framework in the teachings. So if that is the only framework given by the Buddha, you can take that is what we should be doing here. Yeah, to practice satipatthana. And, and you know, typically in uh, some of these traditions, meditation traditions, they have the idea that you watch sensations in the body. Yeah? But there's very little evidence for that in the suttas. It comes mostly taken from the satipatthana sutta itself. Yeah? And I'm not saying it is wrong, but it's not very strong evidence. But for anapanasati, the evidence is actually very, very strong. Yeah? So that's what I would say. Just watch the breath. That's all you have to do. It's very simple as well. Yeah? Simple instruction takes you all the way to the end of the path. Yeah? So develop that meditation technique. Dear Ajahn, besides being diligent in our spiritual practice, what else do we need to do to ensure we are born as a Buddhist in the next life. <laughs> You're getting a bit nervous now, I can see. <laughs> it's, it's true, isn't it? And then especially after a death meditation, that makes you really nervous. Wait a minute, do I know enough? This is kind of scary. And uh, you can imagine, yeah, on your deathbed, that's when you feel these things very powerful. You know, deathbed, you think, wait, have I really spent my time well? 
So what do the suttas say again? Uh, yeah, what do they say? And what they say is that uh, the more you under better you understand the Buddhist teachings, uh, the more likely it is that you will recognize those Buddhist teachings in your next life. Uh, so you don't get born as a Buddhist. It doesn't work like that. Uh, well, the way it works is that you get born uh, and then you discover that you are a Buddhist. Uh, yeah, because you recognize these teachings. Uh. And there's actually suttas about that as well. And this is the sutta where someone had kind of studied the teachings of the Buddha. Yeah? And it says that if you'd really study them well, then you get reborn in the heavenly realm. And you get reborn in the heavenly realm and you kind of wander around to the various quarters of the heavenly realm. You go to the Christian quarter, the Muslim quarter, yeah, the, the atheist quarter of the heavenly realm. And then you come to the Buddhist quarter. You think, wait a minute, what are they talking about? And you listen and you kind of hear the teachings that you heard as a human being. And then you know you're a Buddhist, yeah? Okay, this is where I'm going to hang out. Uh, <laughs> so the, so the, <laughs> the heavenly realms are much more like the human realm than we think sometimes, yeah? In many, many ways, quite similar. Yeah? So you, um, yeah, so this is how you recognize it. Uh, and uh, so the, you know the teachings, and I would really recommend you to know the teachings as they are explained in the suttas, uh, because the way they are explained in the suttas, that is how they are presented universally. Yeah? That is how they are presented uh, everywhere. Yeah? But if you learn a kind of idiosyncratic way of understanding the Dhamma, like through a modern teacher or, or whatever, the chances you will recognize it upon being reborn is much less, uh, because it will be an idiosyncratic teaching. Yeah? But if you understand the way the Buddha taught, that will be universally applicable across the board. Yeah? So try to understand what the Buddha is teaching here, and then take it as deep as you can. Yeah? The more deeply you understand it, the more experience you have in the teachings, uh, the more powerful that impact on those teachings will be in the present life, uh, and then you will understand it better when you get reborn. Uh. So no time to waste. Yeah? Just get in there and uh, get, get as profound as you can with these teachings. Uh. Dear Ajahn, one of the interesting things uh, I have noticed on this retreat is how craving is virtually always present in the mind. Yes, that's indeed. Once I wake up, I want breakfast. Once I've had breakfast, I want Dhamma talk. Once I've had Dhamma talk, I want lunch. Once I've had lunch, I want a rest. When I've had a rest, I want Dhamma talk. Once I've had Dhamma talk, I want tea. Once I've had tea, I want Q&A. Once I've had Q&A, I want sleep. Repeat times nine times. <laughs> it's a very good point, isn't it? Uh, not to mention the multitude of fantasies and desires that creep in in between. <laughs> now I'm certain I'm not alone here, indeed. Could you speak a little uh, to the astonishing fact that this is the human predicament uh, and the kind of mind we all carry, plus a little about the answer is it about using the power of reflection again? Um, yes, it is about using the power of reflection. Yeah, the mind is so restless. And what you're seeing there is just that restlessness of the mind always moving on. And even in your, when you sit down in your meditation, as you say, you have the fantasies. Yeah? The mind is very rarely completely peaceful. Yeah? There's always at least a little bit of movement in the mind, yeah? a little bit of going this way, going that way. And that, even as you become quite peaceful, that residual movement is really part of the same thing. It is always 
looking for something else. It's the underlying craving and desire driving the mind in various ways. So how can we do that? Well, one way of doing it is just what we're trying to do now, the death contemplation, yeah? And uh, a lot of these things will go away. If you know you're going to die before lunch, you're not going to think about lunch, right? <laughs> Simple as that. So, <laughs> and, 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 and for that reason, when the Buddha explains the death contemplation, he says you should bring it in to a very, very kind of present moment. Yeah? It should be, I could die with my next breath. That is kind of how strong it should be. And of course, if you, can, if you really have the sense that you could die with the next breath, there's nothing much to think about. Yeah, there's nothing in the world that really matters anymore. Everything goes out the window. So death contemplation actually is a very powerful way of calming that ever movement towards the future. Because really, when there's death, there is no future. Future goes out of the window. Future is gone. All there is left is just the present moment and peace. And you may have noticed that sometimes you find people who are actually die in very peaceful ways. Yeah? People have had a good heart, who have lived well, and then they have some Dhamma going for them. And then on the deathbed, they are very peaceful. And when you see that, you, first of all, you notice, well, well done. You have obviously done the right thing to get to this point. But second thing you realize is the potential for death contemplation right here and right now. If you can get into that mind state of that person, yeah, next time you go and see someone on the deathbed, ask them, what is your mind state? Yeah, what's going on? <laughs> and they'll probably tell you to get, go, go away. <laughs> I don't want to talk about this. Try to understand them a little bit. But you don't really have to do that because we can kind of imagine that already. Yeah? We have some idea what it would be like to be on the deathbed because you're going to die in an hour. Okay, wow, what does that mean? So this is a very powerful way, and this is why the Buddha says in a number of places of the suttas, everyone should do death contemplation. Whether you are a monastic or a layperson, whether you are a woman or a man, everyone should do death contemplation, because it is the destiny for all of us. So this is one way of doing it, and it's a very kind of powerful way here. Um, the other way is just to understand that your future, as I was saying before, your future is not made by thinking about it. Uh, yeah, uh, the reason why we think about things is because we think that it's somehow going to resolve our future. Uh, yeah, especially when we think about problems in life, uh, when we think about what we're going to resolve, how we're going to kind of sort things out when we go back home, uh, yeah? and how we're going to build that house, how we're going to sort our problems at work. We think that we are creating the future by resolving issues, by planning things and all of these kind of things. Uh, but not really. That is not where the future is made. Because that's just more of the same. It's just more of a sens sensory realm, just more problems after problems going on forever. No, the future is made right here and right now. When you are peaceful, when you have a good perception in your heart, that is where you create the future. Because you are building up those qualities that you will bring into your future that will affect how you feel about yourself down the track and also how you get reborn. So once you understand exactly where the future is made, it makes it far less interesting to think about that future because you're thinking about the wrong thing. Actually, thinking doesn't work at all. It's about being peaceful in the moment. That is where the future is, is, is created. So it's like it's a change of perception, a different way of thinking about things. Yeah?
So death contemplation, understanding how to actually create uh, the future. Uh, and, uh, but but the, the most powerful way is, of course, to make sure you enjoy your meditation. Yeah? That is the most powerful way. Try to understand, see that peace is delightful. Uh, try maybe even to get some joy coming up in the meditation. The more you can see that, the less interested you will be thinking about lunch. Yeah? Who cares about lunch anyway? Yeah? It's over in a few minutes, it's all gone and it's finished with, and then it doesn't have any lasting effect on you. Big deal. Yeah, okay, so you, so you just so try to enjoy the meditation more. And if you don't enjoy your meditation, don't just sit there and sit there and sit there without enjoying it. Do something else for a while. Yeah, and then you can come back again, and then you can enjoy it more afterwards. Trying too hard is not really the answer. Trying wisely is the answer. Yeah. <clears throat> Dear Ajahn, I have heard the following about the precepts. Uchasayana Mahasayana wish to clarify it is true. During the time of the Buddha, the Brahmins are acquired a special place in society, which was only a birthright. The Buddha was trying to make the society more equal at the time. With this precept, what the Buddha had meant was to have uh, all the participants in the audience sit at the same level. <laughs> okay, uh, The mendicant to sit at a high level uh, and the Brahmins to sit together at the same level as others. What are your thoughts about this view? Thank you. Um, the um, uh, Mahasayana mean, literally means lying down. Yeah? So Mahasayana quite literally means a large bed. And Uchasayana means a high bed, quite literally. So Sayana is lying. Asana is more like seat. So if it's about sitting, it's more asana. So this is called an asana in the Pali language. And, uh, you know, you want to do yoga, you have different asanas. In that case, it means like posture. It's a bit like a seat, in a sense. So, um, yes, the Brahmins had kind of a high, were a high caste at the time of the Buddha. What is interesting, though, it is not clear at the time of the Buddha that the Brahmins were higher than the second highest caste, or the, or the other caste, which is the Kattiyas or Kshatriyas, yeah? The Kshatriyas are like the aristocrats in ancient India, and the Brahmins are the priestly caste. And they were kind of vying for influence at that time. And it is not clear, actually, which caste was considered highest. It varied a little bit depending on place and all kinds of things. But surely, yes, the Brahmins did certainly consider themselves to be higher at that particular time. The Buddha, did he try to abolish classes? Well, not really. The Buddha was not really a social reformer. What the Buddha did, he abolished class within the Sangha. Within the Sangha, there is no class. With the Sangha, there is just seniority, perhaps. Or there is, you know, in the, within the Sangha, everyone is the same. And so within the Sangha, there is no caste. And that is why sometimes in the present day, when caste is kind of reintroduced into the Sangha, it's kind of a bit dispiriting because it's not really appropriate. So within the Sangha, it's true. And within the Sangha, what we respect is the Dhamma, and that is why when anyone is giving a Dhamma talk, you put them on a higher seat, yeah? or at the very least, on an equal seat, not on a lower seat. 
And that is the idea. And then everyone else is on a lower seat. And we find that even in the suttas. In the suttas you find certain cases where a, a Brahmin would sit on a high seat and they would kind of say, expect the monk to teach. Yeah? And the monk would have sit there silently. Yeah? <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting. And then the, eventually kind of they get the point. Oh, you, you, I'm sitting on a high seat. Okay, sorry. And they kind of sit on the low seat and they take off their headgear and they kind of take down the parasol. Okay, okay, then the monk teaches them. Something like that. Yeah? You see that in a few places in the suttas. It's kind of interesting here. Yeah? So I think that is the, uh, that is the main, main idea. It's to respect the Dhamma, really. That's what it is about. Uh, and that's why we have seats of slightly different heights. So uh, that's what it comes down to. So even if a lay person were to teach the Dhamma, yeah, the lay person would sit on a higher seat usually. Yeah. That's kind of nice. Yeah? It's about the Dhamma, not about the person. Yeah? Okay. So uh, there's a few more questions left. I will probably carry on a few more minutes, a little bit over time, but not, not that much. So hopefully it will be all right. Uh, dear Ajahn, uh, in yesterday's morning's talk, you recited a story about a monk who tried to take the rag cloth off and assumed to be dead body. And later on, the man came to life. Uh, in India, there are many who die of snake bites and go into coma. They come to life after several days. Uh, I have heard. Could this man also be a victim of snake bite? <laughs> it is said that they do not cremate such victims. Instead, they throw the body into the river Ganges uh, with a weight attached uh, so that the body does not float. <laughs> okay, uh, yes, so don't drink the water of the river Ganges. That's <laughs> kind of one of the things here. Um, Yes, I think there are many such possibilities. Maybe it was a person who had a snake bite, uh, yeah, and they were in coma, or maybe they were kind of half alive. I mean, who knows exactly what was going on? Uh, but it's just a cool story. That's why I tell it. I'm not really kind of trying to analyze exactly what happened. Yeah, sometimes these kind of you get these myths and legends, and uh, the story behind it may actually be slightly different. Uh, but um, yeah, so it's very hard to know. So perhaps you're right about that. Uh, uh, they don't cremate such victims, right? They throw them in the river Ganges. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, sometimes they just would allow the corpses to lie there and they would kind of rot. Yeah. And they wouldn't even burn them. There's all kinds of possibilities, uh, really. Yeah. Okay. Hi, Ajahn. No matter how I try, my thoughts cannot stop coming during meditation. Too much papancha. Help. What should I do? Thank you. Um, yes. <laughs> what to say? This is a very common problem. Yeah, we, we think about things. Uh, and the answer is always the same. The answer is the same is that you have to understand why you are thinking. Uh, what are you thinking about? And then ask yourself whether it's really worthwhile. Uh, the reason why we think is because we enjoy thinking. That's the reason. Uh, yeah, and the reason you enjoy thinking is because there's nothing better to do. Meditation... <sighs> Oh, meditation is so boring. Yeah, yeah. Let me think instead. <laughs> this is the problem. We don't enjoy the meditation is enough. If you enjoy the peaceful mind, you're not going to think. Simple. It's really as simple as that. So it's a twofold thing. On the one hand, you have to understand the why you think and kind of understand that it is not worthwhile. Yeah, it's not going to get you anywhere. It doesn't really do anything useful. On the other hand, you have to enjoy the meditation, enjoy the peace. Those two things is what's going to make it work. 
And uh, if that is not working, it just means that you have to spend more time. Yeah, uh, go for a walk, don't try too hard, as I was saying before, take a break, come back again. Take a break of an hour, two hours, whatever, have a cup of tea, then come back and try again. Uh, and then gradually these things will happen. Uh, if you try too hard uh, and you cannot try to use force and willpower, uh, you're going to get really fed up with meditation uh, and you're going to end up hating it as some people do. Uh, and that would be a real shame if you end up hating it because the potential in meditation is so enormous. Uh, you don't want to hate it. You want to learn how to do it properly. Uh, so do all of this, and then at the end of the meditation retreat, ask yourself yeah, how it was. And then if it wasn't that great, at the very least, you have learned that much. And then you go back, when you go back again to work or whatever it is that you go back to, go back and then live really, really well. Yeah? Live to the maximum of your ability. Have compassion for everyone. Have metta for all your friends in the spiritual life. Be kind to people. Be generous. Do all of these things. Come back to the path, and the next time it will be better. Be kind to yourself. Be generous to yourself. Have compassion for yourself. Life is not easy. Don't think that you are in charge. You're not in charge. You are a victim of your own personality. I like that idea of being a victim of your own personality because we think, we usually take pride in our personality. Yeah? We build it up, I am this, I am that. Actually, no, you're a victim of your personality. Your personality is a trap. It is because of your personality you don't go deeper in your meditation. It stops you from actually achieving this path. It is part of the problem. So uh, there isn't any easy ways to overcome the thinking mind. If there was, it would have happened already. You would already be on the right track. Yeah? But, uh, so just try to understand. Uh, every time you have a good meditation, ask yourself why. Uh, yeah? And gradually, gradually uncover what is going on. Uh, and if you keep on doing this, uh, you will gradually become a wiser person. The one thing you should never do is give up. Uh, because if you give up, guaranteed, not going to get anywhere at all. Uh, all right. Dear Ajahn, you have mentioned the importance of contemplating a viewpoint instead of simply accepting it blindly. Suppose one has not fully realized the teaching of the Buddha, like rebirth, four noble truths, the eightfold path uh, uh, as the path to liberation, but has some confidence that they may be true, enough to practice earnestly. Is this right view? Thank you so much for your teachings and illuminating commentary on the word of the Buddha. Yes, that is a right view. Yeah, views come in a large degrees of shades of gray. There is really dark views, bad views. Yeah, it doesn't matter what you do in the world. It doesn't matter if you kill people or whatever you do is kind of irrelevant. And then when you die, everything is finished anyway. Who cares about anything? Yeah. There are really, really dark views. Yeah. And then there are views that are a little bit less dark, yeah, the kind of shades of gray. Then there are the medium gray views and the, the light gray views. And then there are the really, really pure views of the Buddha. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to move our views towards lighter shades of gray here. Yeah. That's what we're trying to do. So it becomes closer to the word idea of the Buddha. So if you have these ideas and you understand what these things mean, yeah, and you probably don't understand fully what they mean. You just have some idea what they are. And then you try to kind of grasp more deeply what these teachings are. And as you do that, you are coming closer to the Buddha. 
So, of course, it is important to have confidence in the Buddhist teachings. Of course, it matters. Yeah? But keep on investigating at the same time. And as you do that, your confidence is very likely to grow because you see it fits with your experience. The Buddha is talking about the human condition. He's talking to you. Yeah? Such a beautiful idea that the Buddha is talking to you. He's doing this out of compassion. Wow, he's calling out of compassion to me. Wow, I better take this thing seriously. This is getting more and more interesting. So you start reading these things and you kind of, your hair stands on end. Yeah? Um, <laughs> yeah. especially, especially if you have hair, that kind of helps. But, uh, <laughs> and, and you feel really, yeah, and it kind of gets really, comes alive yeah, in this way. That is what's so powerful about it. So keep on investigating. Don't throw it out. Don't think that someone else comes around and says rebirth is rubbish and you just jump on the bandwagon of someone else. Trust your own intuitions. Yeah. When I say that you don't hold on to your views too strongly, it doesn't mean that you throw out those views. Still, trust your intuition. Why should you not trust your intuition? You have every reason to do that, unless you find something that is more profound or more beautiful. But most people have no idea. Most likely, your intuition is going to be better than other people. Why? Because you're already practicing a spiritual path. You're already living reasonably well. Your mind already has a degree of clarity. So for that reason, your intuition is probably likely to be approximately right. So this is kind of what is going on here. All right, so a couple of more questions. <coughs> How do we find a balance or a middle way between seeing danger in the slightest fault and don't be too hard on yourself? Thank you. Um, so seeing danger in the slightest fault does not is quite different actually from being hard on yourself. Seeing danger just means that you become more alert. It means that you have a greater mindfulness because you know that this is dangerous. Yeah. So when your mind, when you have that kind of clear view in the background that these things are dangerous, it means you're always alert. It's again, it's the simile of the snake. Yeah? If it is dark, you can only see shadows, and you know that there are some snakes around, you're going to be very, very mindful. Yeah, you hope, you're hoping you will see them before you step on them. If you don't step on them, you're okay usually, but if you step on them, you're in trouble. So you walk very carefully. You are very mindful. You know that these snakes will harm you. They might kill you. That is the kind of mindfulness you have with uh, the dangers of the slightest fault. Yeah, you know that you're letting yourself down if you do the wrong thing. Do you want to let yourself down? Do you want to be your own friend or do you want to be your own enemy? These are the kind of questions you need to ask. So you're careful and you know that sometimes you will still step on a snake, even if you are very mindful, because you know your habits are so strong. So you build up the mindfulness at the same time as you build up your mindfulness. You know that your habits are going to make you fail. You know already you're going to fail. And because you know already when you then fail, you have compassion for yourself. It's already built into your framework that you will fail. So this is the right way of doing things. Maximum mindfulness to avoid the mistake. And then forgive yourself. Have compassion for yourself when you actually do mistakes. You're not in charge. It's such an important thing to remember. If you were in charge and you could control things completely and fully, then, of course, then you could blame yourself. But you're not in charge. What is in charge are the cause and conditions that work on you. Your 
created personality, this flawed thing inside of us, that is what is in charge. And those habits will kind of make you do bad things sometimes. And then have compassion for yourself because you're not in charge. Yeah, I am the victim of my own personality yeah? or something like that or my own habits or how, however, however you want to think about that. Yeah? Dear Ajahn, any real ghost story to share? <laughs> um, any real, I, I think I, Ajahn Brahm is really great with ghost stories. He has kind of told so many ghost stories. Uh, and um, there are some really good ghost stories out there. Let me, let me leave that for tonight. It's already getting a little bit late. So let's kind of leave that for now. But uh, maybe we'll see if we can tell a ghost story at some point. Uh, there are some, probably we heard them before because these are, most of them come from Ajahn Brahm uh, and, uh, and, and some other people as well. Uh, but uh, I'll see, see how things go. But I think enough for tonight. So... Uh, uh, that's all for tonight. So I wish you all a very good night, a good night's rest, and we'll see you again tomorrow morning. Yeah.